0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, October 4th, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. While it's foolish to craft policies around unsound economic theory, it's just as foolish and often dangerous when we follow the advice of uneducated pundits who opine about foreign policy. Some still heed the advice of those who led us into more than a decade of inconclusive war, and they scorn those Americans who stood in opposition to those wars. But the war skeptics were right, says Chris Preble, vice president for defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. I spoke with John Utley recently, uh, one of the uh, original folks behind the American conservative magazine, along with Pat Buchanan. And he talked a little bit about the founding of that magazine and said that opinions that were opposed to the Iraq war were essentially frozen out of traditional conservative media outlets. Now, looking into John Utley's background, he knows quite a bit more about uh, dealing with communists, about dealing in foreign nations and that sort of thing than most of the people who were uh, passing judgment on uh, the writings that he and others were uh, trying to get published. Yes.
1: It's, it's quite a remarkable story. It's, it's tragic in certain respects. I think John does point out the way in which the conservative movement has the, – the, the very definition of the conservative movement has been twisted. And it, it is unfortunate because it has undermined the credibility of uh, a lot of other conservative arguments. So once upon a time when conservatives were trusted on foreign policy issues and liberals were seen as being rather naive or, or narrow-minded, uh, the disasters of the last decade have so undermined the brand of uh, Mainstream conservatives, and that you know, has left a bit of a space for folks like John, who are arguing kind of traditional conservative skepticism of nation building and social engineering at gunpoint, things like that. You know, I think it's it's so difficult for an organization or for a movement to develop a reputation for intellectual honesty based on facts and logic and reason. Uh, when their adversaries can always accuse them of arguing on the basis of ideology or uh, faith or supposition. Uh, and, and whenever you are advancing an unpopular argument, uh, you, you do have to, to you know, rely on facts and knowledge and <laughs> history and things like that. Uh, you know, and I think we, we – and if you don't, if you stray from that responsibility to argue and to reason, uh, then it really undermines your credibility in a lot of other ways. You know, I mean, to 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 use a kind of um, analogy of sorts. You know, if if uh, your stockbroker had advised you to hold Enron and sell Apple in 2000, uh, he probably wouldn't be your stockbroker today. Um, you might still. Want to hang out with him because he's a good guy? Maybe you have similar taste in music. Maybe you were in the same fraternity. Maybe you attend the same church. But if you were to continue to follow his advice uh, after what has occurred over the last decade in the stock market, then I think it reasonable that people would question your judgment on uh, on the things that matter on on your ability to manage a stock portfolio. Uh, I think there is an analogy to people who choose willingly to associate with those who advanced. Arguments from the early 2000s that were tragically wrong, and we now know were based on uh, on ignorance and an ideology that blinded them to fact. Um, and and again, when when uh, a movement or an organization uh, includes people who have have stuck to this line, it really it, it threatens to undermine the credibility of. Uh, of the movement, i think it 's why it 's so important for people you know again John to to kind of remind us of uh, what the roots of conservative uh, foreign policy are, and that they are in fact grounded in logic and reason in fact we we follow the advice of our stockbrokers because we believe them to know more about the stock market. Uh, than, than we do, um, and just because someone is knowledgeable in literature or philosophy, it doesn't mean they're an expert on in history or particularly a region or a culture uh, that they have never studied or you know uh, or experienced firsthand. You know, I, I can't poss- – I, I, as you know, Caleb, I'm a, I'm a historian by training and I've been doing foreign policy here at Cato for almost 10 years. I don't pretend to be an expert on any given region for, with any great depth. But what I try to do is to understand who the true experts are and to be able to separate them based on their assessments and whether or not those assessments have proved accurate, accurate over time. Uh, I don't always get it right. None of us do. Uh, But I think the track record over the last 10 years uh, of our uh, assessment of foreign policy has
0: has really stood the test of time. We have gone from a world in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s of symmetrical threats – particularly the Soviet Union, which posed a a very serious, very real and existential threat Mm -hmm. to the United States, to asymmetric threats by smaller groups of people, many of whom are not affiliated with governments. These are real threats, but we should not think of them in the same way that we think of threats that we faced in the, uh, the bulk of the 20th century.
1: That's right. I've written quite a bit about this. You know, I think there are people since 9-11, even a few people before 9-11, who wanted to portray uh, the threat from uh, terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda as uh, something akin to the Soviet Union. Now, one of the ways that they would do this is to conflate um, any, uh, any believer in Islam, any Muslim, uh, with some sort of a transnational Movement, uh, uh, you know, referring to uh, Islamofascism or Islamic uh, totalitarians, and suggesting, uh, and, and I think, really betraying a lack of understanding about about Islam. Again, I'm not an expert on Islam, but I know enough about it to know that there is a range of, of ideas that are contained within people who follow uh, that faith. And to to not betray any understanding of the nuances of that movement is, is you know really can lead us in a very dangerous direction it's to dramatically exaggerate the threats that are posed by a uh, by a small and uh, and and uh, violent movement but one in which we have scored some stunning successes over the last 10 years not the, of course the stunning successes the greatest successes have not involved hundreds of thousands of troops occupying uh, foreign countries for a decade or more they have been targeted operations that have uh, generally not um, uh, greatly undermined our uh, liberties and security here in the United States, but have done great harm to organizations like Al Qaeda, and most importantly, Osama bin Laden, who is somewhere at the bottom of the Indian Ocean. Um, I, I do worry about, uh, you know, an organization, organizations that are dedicated to educating the public uh, when they succumb or or, or even uh... create this this impression of a of a global transnational movement that is anywhere akin to what we were dealing with in the in the soviet union i worry greatly about our ability my ability as as you know as a uh, foreign policy person here uh, to make the case for a smaller military, a military that is less costly, uh, considerably less costly than what we're spending today. Uh, I know there's considerable interest uh, within among conservatives and those who are worried about the costs of uh, our military power uh, to argue that it could be much smaller and much less costly. But it's, it is hard to make that case when people uh, – uh, Conflate the threats we're facing and and exaggerate the threats we're facing, um, and they also misconstrue what what that military power is actually useful for and how well uh, targeted it can be against the the types of threats we're dealing with. You know, we uh, we advance or we, we make the argument occasionally here at Cato for positions that are not particularly popular because those positions I I argue are not. Uh, grounded in in, uh, in knowledge and understanding of basic economics, for example, on the minimum wage, which you know people can cast unfairly that we don't care about the wages of workers. Like, no, we understand the unintended consequences of dictating how much a, co- uh, a company or business can pay, m- what what a company or business must pay a worker. Uh, we understand the horrific effects of the drug war, uh, but that does not make us uh, fans of drug users or drug addicts. It observes that the costs of the drug war are vast and are growing. Uh, you know, in the case of foreign policy, uh, people can question and do question our commitment to this to this country, our security, or even uh, um, uh, you know uh, impugn our patriotism, which uh, you can understand I take very seriously. Uh, but everything that we do is based on an argument that the U.S. Uh, the purpose of the U.S. government, the purpose of the U.S. military, is to protect us and keep us safe and advance our security. Uh, and so I, I do take it personally when, when people suggest otherwise. Um, uh, but it's it, – you know, and it's an unpopular position to, to stand up and argue that a war is going to undermine that security. But when we are proved right, it is doubly uh, troubling uh, when, when people don't understand what motivated us. To argue against that war in the first place. It was, be, it was precisely because we were so concerned that, that uh, such wars would, in fact, undermine American security.
0: Chris Preble is Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. You can get your copy of his book, The Power Problem, at our website, cato.org.